When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, my name is Matt, host of the Pirate History Podcast. Pirates rank among the most mythologized and romanticized of all historical figures. It can become easy to forget that pirates were real people that had real-world concerns. If you like tales of high seas adventure, daring do, and also want to learn more about who Blackbeard supported to be king, you can learn more about all of that at the Pirate History Podcast. Welcome to Pax Britannica. Season 2, Episode 24. Give unto Caesar his due. Welcome back to Pax Britannica. I'm your host, Samuel Hume. Last time, we saw how both royalists and parliamentarians staked out their claim to the moral high ground as England drifted towards civil war. Charles I and his supporters, notably his chief wordsmiths, Sir Edward Hyde, Viscount Falkland and Lord Culpepper, made a strong case based on tradition and moderation. They admitted that there had been some mistakes made during the personal rule, but that these had now been rectified by the work already completed by Parliament. Now, the King was making his stand against the radicalism of those MPs and peers who still remained in London, under the sway of the revolutionary and puritanical Junto. Royalism stood for the fundamental laws of England, the traditional order, the Church of England as it currently stood, bishops and all. Parliamentarian publications, including declarations made from both Houses of Parliament and published, as well as private pamphleteers like the lawyer Henry Parker, also argued that they were defending the rule of law, the fundamental laws of England, and the rights of the sovereign. They just differed on where the rule of law emanated from and what rights the sovereign had. They separated the person of Charles Stuart and the person of Charles I King of England, Ireland, and Scotland. No matter what the man Charles Stuart said or did, Charles I's will and authority was expressed through the institutions of England, which Parliament presided over. There was an appropriate way to govern the kingdom, and it was through these institutions, not through the arbitrary whims of one man, no matter how regal. This propaganda war took place as both sides prepared themselves for a military confrontation, each attempting to sway communities, towns and counties to their side, and to bring their militias and resources with them. The last significant attempt to broker peace was the Nineteen Propositions. 
As we discussed last time, while they might have been a possible route to avoid conflict, after several redrafts by the hardline Junto, what emerged for the king's consideration was essentially the terms of his surrender. He would have to sacrifice most of his authority over the military and over his privy council, and Parliament would gain significant powers of veto over many of his appointments and policies. Charles's response was equally uncompromising, highlighting the danger of the parliamentarian agenda to the traditional order of English government, and the threat it posed to ordinary Englishmen. I'll continue to use royalist and parliamentarian for simplicity's sake, but it's important to note that these terms aren't entirely accurate or monolithic blocks of loyalty. The vast, vast, vast majority of those supporting Parliament at this point believed that England needed a monarchy, just as the royalists did. They just differed on how and how much that monarchy should be regulated. Likewise, very few royalists wished to abolish or even sideline Parliament. Few of the king's closest advisers supported absolute monarchy, especially not the men drafting Charles's propaganda. That may be the chief tragedy of the English civil wars. There was the potential for a compromise. But, for a whole host of reasons, the people making these decisions wouldn't or couldn't make those compromises. This isn't to undersell the long-term as well as the short-term effects of the Wars of the Three Kingdoms, but even at this late hour, if one side or the other decided that civil war in England was a bridge too far, it's possible, not likely, but possible, that it could have been avoided. But that would have required the key players to be different people. After Charles rejected the 19 propositions on the 18th of June, events moved quickly. While Hull remained in parliamentarian hands and its arsenal had been shipped to London at the end of May, the Royalists successfully seized the magazines at Liverpool, Preston and Warrington over the rest of June. In July, another attempt was made to regain control of Hull, this time through deception. Lord Digby, one of the King's closest supporters, made it into the city despite the standing orders from Parliament to refuse entry to any of the King's men. He either snuck in or was captured, I can't tell for sure, but either way, he began to work on Governor Hotham. Surprisingly, Digby managed to convince Hotham to surrender the city and its garrison to the king. Not only would the king richly reward him, but he would help avert a civil war. Hotham was convinced, unhappy with the aggressive stance which Parliament was increasingly taking. All the royalists needed to do was perform a little play-acting. And so, Charles made a grand show of besieging Hull. A force of 3,000 infantry and 1,000 cavalry moved into a nearby village and began the performance. Fields to the north of the city were flooded, and a royalist raiding force put the suburbs outside the walls of the city to the torch and began to set up their artillery. This marks the first military action of the First English Civil War, as it appears that this was the point where Hotham changed his mind yet again. The plan had been that once the Royalist forces took their positions for a siege, Hotham would, quote, think he had discharged his trust to the Parliament as far as he ought to do, 
But once the royalists did their part, rather than bowing to the inevitable and opening the gates to the king as had been planned, Hotham ordered that the defences be manned and ordered his own guns to fire on the besiegers. Then John Meldrum, a Scot who had served under Gustavus Adolphus but now sided with the English Parliament, sallied from the gates, ambushed the approaching column of 3,000 men, destroyed the artillery batteries and forced the royalist force away from the city. Meldrum had arrived just in time. Parliament had sent him by ship to reinforce the garrison, and their governor's will, as they'd correctly judged that Hotham was wavering in his loyalty to Parliament. Meldrum arrived with reinforcements, some 1,500 men, and stiffened Hotham's resolve, as well as leading the sallying we mentioned before. Meldrum would go on to conduct a night raid on the royalist siege camp in the village nearby. He forced them to abandon more than a dozen artillery pieces as they fled. One of these pieces was a 36-pound mortar, nicknamed the Queen's Pocket Pistol. The parliamentarians subsequently renamed the mortar after the whole garrison's favourite prostitute, Sweetlips. Furious at the backsliding of Hotham, Charles lifted the siege of Hull. Parliament was not idle or merely reactionary while the king was making his moves. The first thing they needed to do was improve decision-making, because even with the reduced attendance of Parliament, it was a large, unwieldy body. It would be no good for actually fighting a war. An executive was needed to actually run the war, which everyone knew was imminent. And so was born the Committee of Safety. This body was established on the 5th of July, and was made up of five peers and 15 MPs. Their names will be very familiar to us by now, but don't worry about remembering all of them. The peers were the Earls of Essex, Holland, Northumberland, Pembroke, and Viscount Say and Seal. The MPs included Nathaniel Fiennes, John Hamden, Henry Martin, Denzel Hollers, Sir William Waller, and of course, notorious arsehole John Pym. A week later, on the 12th of July, Essex was commissioned as Captain General of Parliament's army, and a body of 10,000 volunteers was to be raised for his command. In many ways, the choice of Robert Devereux, 3rd Earl of Essex, as Commander-in-Chief was a sensible one. Among the other English nobles of his rank, he was by far the most experienced soldier, having spent much of the last 20 years on campaign. But that experience was a mixed blessing, he had learnt from his time in the Thirty Years' War that outright victory was rarely possible, and he would take an overall defensive approach to the Civil War. Spoiler for the next few years, but John Morrill sums up his tenure as Captain General in his biography of Essex. Essex was Captain General of the English Parliament's forces for 30 months. In that time, he did not win a single battle outright, but he did not lose a pitched battle outright either. He was meticulous in planning his campaigns, technically correct, and effective in carrying out military manoeuvres, forced marches, sieges, battlefield dispositions, but such caution made him slow, and technical effectiveness also made him predictable. He never took his enemies by surprise. His experience of the Thirty Years' War made him pessimistic about the possibility of knockout blows, gloomy about the prospects of keeping poorly paid and supplied bodies of men together for a sustained campaign, determined 
to see the war in defensive terms, and constantly seeking to promote the deadlock out of which he and others could squeeze a negotiated settlement. And he craved absolute power as general over all other commanders and over the peace process. End quote. Alongside today's episode, patrons of the rank of Earl and above will have an exclusive biography of the Earl of Essex's life before he becomes Captain General. It goes into more detail about his military experience, but also helps explain why Essex found himself going to war with his king. There's a personal element to all of these events, but no more so with Essex. His troubled history with the Stuart court, he once beat Prince Henry with a tennis racket, meant he was always among their critics in Parliament. Anyway, in his new position as Captain General, Essex gathered a lifeguard and officer corps of serious potential. Aside from the sons of his fellow peers, Essex was still a firm believer in the right of noble command. He also valued experience on the continent, and so other men of lower social station were raised up. And when I say these men had potential, they will achieve it. More than one of Cromwell's future major generals found themselves at Essex's side in the summer and autumn of 1642, along with men like Henry Ireton and Edmund Ludlow. But where was Essex getting his armies? From his sleeves, of course, but also from the London-trained bands. The capital's militia was by far the largest and best equipped of England's militias, which isn't surprising considering London was by far the largest and richest city. It was also, by and large, firmly on the side of Parliament, though of course there were exceptions. Essex also drew heavily from the county militias of Surrey and Middlesex, and when he marches out to war, he'll collect more recruits from the towns he passes by. For his part, Charles's army also drew from militia forces across the north, but he could also rely on a relatively high number of professionals from the Continental War. Not least his nephews, the Princes Rupert and Maurice of the Rhine, who had spent most of their lives in the war that their father had sparked when he accepted the Bohemian crown. Throughout the rest of July and August, the preparations for war continued, as both sides raced to take control of as many strong points and arsenals as they could. On the 2nd of August, Colonel George Goring, Governor of Portsmouth, who had returned to the key port with Parliament's blessing in January, switched sides. He now declared for the King, and brought the wrath of the Earl of Warwick, Admiral of the Fleet, down on the city a week later. The Royal Navy blockaded the port, while parliamentary troops cut off the town by land after capturing Port's Bridge. Portsmouth had become key to Charles's plans, as the best place for foreign troops to land to help him. Foreign troops weren't on the way, but Charles hoped that one day that would change, and Portsmouth would be ideal. But to jump ahead a month, after the capture of the Isle of Wight, and after almost a month of blockade and siege, Colonel Goring would surrender the town to Parliament before fleeing to the Netherlands. On the 8th of August, the Earl of Northampton seized the munitions held at Banbury for Charles, and a week later, a little-known MP and newly-minted cavalry officer called Oliver Cromwell took control of the Cambridge magazine for Parliament. On the 12th, Parliament strengthened its hold on London with the arrest of the Mayor of London, a known royalist, and on the 21st of August, Dover Castle was surprised and captured for Parliament. 
Throughout all of this, with the open raising of armies, the picking of sides, the capture of magazines, arsenals and castles, the skirmishes and sieges, and the spilling of blood, it might surprise you to learn that this wasn't a civil war yet. Because despite everyone knowing that, short of a miracle, a compromise between king and parliament wasn't going to happen, and this constitutional crisis was going to be resolved through war, neither side had taken the final step of actually declaring war on the other. That was about to change. Early in August, Charles left York at the head of his army. He wound his way south, sending out orders to his supporters to gather at Nottingham. He passed through Doncaster, Newark, and Leicester, to a decidedly mixed reception until he reached the walls of Coventry. Here, instead of being begrudgingly welcomed, he was outright denied access. This was as far south as Charles's Hearts and Minds tour would go. Now he rode straight to Nottingham to meet with his supporters. It was at Nottingham, on the 22nd of August, in the pouring rain, that he ordered his standard be raised. The raising of the royal standard, complete with its legend, Give unto Caesar his due, was the declaration of war that everyone had been expecting and dreading for more than half a year. Never mind that the standard itself was drenched in rain and blown over into the mud by the wind. The intent was unmistakable. England was now in civil war. Some of us love history. Others used to or never did because history was presented as nothing but the rote memorization of names, dates, and facts. Basically, the story got left out, and that made history kind of suck. My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a university professor with a PhD in history, and bringing history to life is my passion. That's why I created my podcast, History That Doesn't Suck. I want to teach you everything you need to know about U.S. history, but I do so through stories. Let me tell you about George Washington begging his men not to mutiny against Congress. Clara Barton saving Union soldiers amid enemy fire. Enslaved Frederick Douglass risking his life for liberty. And about so many other figures as their real experiences make industrialization, social movements, and even congressional debates and tax policy come to life. Subscribe to History That Doesn't Suck today. And join me, Professor Greg Jackson, every other week for a new episode. Where I'd like to tell you a story. Was the Sphinx 10,000 years old? Were there serial killers in ancient Greece and Rome? What were the lives of transgender, intersex, and non-binary people like in the ancient world? We're Jen. And Jenny. From Ancient History Fangirl. We tell you true stories and tall tales of the ancient world. Sometimes we do it tipsy. Sometimes we have amazing guests on our show. Historians like Barry Strauss, podcasters like Liv Albert, Mike Duncan, and authors like Joanne Harris and Ben Aronovich. We take you to the top of Hadrian's Wall to watch the Roman Empire fall at the end of the world. We walk the catacombs beneath the Temple of the Feathered Serpent under Teotihuacan. We walk the sacred spirals of the Nazca Lines in search of ancient secrets. And we explore mythology from ancient cultures around the world. Come find us at ancienthistoryfangirl.com or wherever you get your podcasts. England was now in civil war. But that didn't mean that everyone was eager to just start killing each other. 
The king sent two representations to Parliament in the days following the raising of the royal standard to offer them peace terms. How genuine these were, I don't know. Perhaps Charles had hoped that his declaration of war might jolt his misbehaving subjects back into reality. Proof that he was not backing down, that this debate was not going to be solved in pamphlets, but on the battlefield. Regardless, Parliament refused the offers. They were prepared to stand their ground. They had been preparing for this for months. And so orders were dispatched for Essex's forces to muster at Northampton, and on the 9th of September, Essex left London to meet with them. His departure from the city was an extraordinary display. He was like a conquering hero, or rather, he was expected to be a conquering hero by the cheering crowds who mobbed his carriage and wished him well. One contemporary noted wryly that, quote, No rebel hath received such a royal farewell before. He arrived in Northampton a few days later, and after making his final preparations, the Earl of Essex, Captain General of Parliament, raised his standard on the 14th of September. Now, both sides had declared war on the other. Essex was commander of the army, but he had been given his orders by the civilian parliament. He was to, quote, rescue Charles from his evil advisers and bring him back to London. Now, whether Charles actually wanted to be rescued was irrelevant, because even now, with parliament committed to war against their king, they're still sticking to the official story that Charles had merely been misled. As Nick Lipscomb puts it, quote, It was a political mission for a military operation, and Essex knew only too well that in order to bring the king back, he would have to defeat him in open battle. End quote. That was the uncomfortable truth. No matter how far they stretched the myth of the evil counsellor, and it was seriously fraying at this point, the parliamentary officers knew they were marching to fight their sovereign on the battlefield. No matter how convincing the pamphlet, it's hard to argue that this wasn't the definition of treason. If they were defeated, they would almost certainly find themselves executed, or perhaps just imprisoned for life. And a defeat was certainly possible. While Essex's army was big, numbering around 6,000 infantry and 4,000 cavalry, it was far from a united force. It was a hodgepodge of different militias and trained bands, unused to fighting together. In fact, they were unused to fighting at all. The English militias had been neglected over the past few decades, and the relative peace within England had meant the Lord's Lieutenant had shirked their peacetime duties of mustering, training, and arming their men. In fact, Essex was one of the few Lord's Lieutenant who had actually taken their responsibilities seriously. London's trained bands were at least better equipped and marginally better led, and they made up the core of Essex's army. But that wasn't saying much. The silver lining was that the king was also relying on poorly trained and ill-disciplined militias. En route to the mustering point at Northampton, the ill-disciplined, underpaid soldiers did what ill-disciplined, underpaid soldiers tend to do. They pillaged their way across the home counties. Some of this was directed at suspected Catholics and any Laudian decorations still standing, but ordinary people found soldiers at the door, taking whatever food or valuables they wanted. That these areas were largely supportive of the parliamentary cause didn't mean a thing. 
When Charles heard of this plundering, he spread the news far and wide. It was exactly the thing to bolster his claim to be defending law and order. His own troops were doing the exact same thing, but obviously this was never mentioned in the royalist propaganda. While Essex marched north, his fellow member of the Committee of Safety, Viscount Sayn Seal, occupied Oxford. Parliament scored something of an own goal when it announced that those delinquents who did not support the parliamentary cause would have their property seized. This was just the first of many punitive requisitions from both sides of the conflict, and it drove many landowners straight into the king's welcoming arms. Again, royalist propagandists made the most of this attack on property and the status quo. News of the parliamentarian advance spurred Charles to react, and so he left Nottingham and headed west into Shrewsbury, arriving on the 20th of September. This proved to be a great decision in terms of recruitment, as the surrounding counties of Shropshire, Worcestershire, and Lancashire, as well as nearby Wales, were much more favourable to the royalist cause, and hundreds of new recruits came to the king's banner. Essex attempted to shatter the king's move west, to keep his army between Charles and London, and so he marched towards the city of Worcester. Worcester, Jewel of the Shires, had been the home of Sir John Byron and his Oxford garrison since the 20th of September. Byron had held Oxford for the king, but with the advance of Essex's army, he was ordered to abandon the untenable position and bring as many valuables from the university town as he could. This included jewellery and precious metals, horses, and as many students which wished to fight for the king as he could find. Say and Seal then occupied the town without a fight. Byron remained at Worcester for two days before Prince Rupert of the Rhine and his 2,000 cavalry arrived to escort the convoy back to the main royalist force. Worcester is an ancient city, and this isn't the last time it will be the focus of the Wars of the Three Kingdoms. But while it still had its city walls, they were falling apart, and Byron had already decided that he would abandon the city in the face of a parliamentary advance. The problem was that the parliamentary forces suspected as much, and the commanders, Colonel John Brown and Colonel Edwin Sanders, were not prepared to let Byron get away with so much valuable treasure, cavalry stock, and the potential networking opportunities of Oxbridge graduates. They set out to contain the smaller royalist force until Essex's army could arrive and capture the city, and those within. Brown had tried to storm the city, but even with the poor defences, his small force wasn't up to the task, and so he pulled back, crossing the Severn at nearby Upton. While the modern city of Worcester has expanded along both sides of the River Severn, at this point it sat on the eastern bank. If Byron and Rupert wanted to escape to Shrewsbury in the west, they would have to cross it. Brown knew this, and when he heard from sympathisers within the city that the column was preparing to leave on the 23rd, he took his men to nearby Powick, arriving there just before dawn. The geography is important here, so just keep in mind that the River Severn flows north to south, and Byron would have to cross it to head west. Just north of Powick is the River Team, which Brown would have to cross to attempt to cut off Byron's escape. Brown's movements had been noticed, however, and Prince Rupert dispatched some dragoons to guard Powick Bridge, which crossed the team with the bulk of his force resting in the village of Wick Field. These dragoons took cover in the hedgerows along the road, 
and waited. When, in the afternoon, Brown's allies in the city informed him that Byron was just about to leave, he sent his men across the bridge. Colonel Sanders took command of the vanguard, and once he crossed the river and entered the narrow road, which could only fit three men abreast, Rupert's dragoons opened fire. In the face of this surprise attack, Sanders was in a bind. The vanguard couldn't retreat as the rest of the force was on the bridge, and that force couldn't advance while the vanguard was pinned down. So Sanders did the only thing he could do. He ordered the vanguard to charge through the ambush. And so, spurring their mounts on, Sanders's small force emerged from the narrow, hedge-bound road to find Prince Rupert's main force, most of which was unprepared for battle. Both sides were surprised by the sudden appearance of the other, but this is where experience made itself known. While Sandus and his cavalry recovered from their ambush and took stock of the sudden appearance of the enemy force, Rupert acted in a way he would famously always act. Boldly. Sure, most of his men were unprepared or unarmoured, but some weren't. He called those men to him, including his brother Prince Maurice, Byron, and any officers who were ready but whose men weren't. Rupert was going to make the most of Sanders' surprise, even if most of his force was also surprised. He was going to charge with whatever men he could get, while the rest got prepared and joined later. The two cavalry forces cantered across the field. Rupert's wielded their swords, while Sanders held their pistols and carbines, loaded and ready. When they were in effective range, the parliamentary cavalry fired. Nathaniel Fiennes, who was part of the vanguard and wrote about it afterwards, said he believed the volley had been accurate and devastating, but that nevertheless the more armoured harquebusiers withstood the onslaught and got into their ranks, and began laying about them with pistol and sword. The parliamentarian cavalry did the fairly natural thing when a bunch of screaming armoured men are waving swords at you and ran away, wheeling their horses around and fleeing back the way they came. Fines complained that his men stood their ground, but after their comrades routed, he had to follow them to avoid being surrounded. The parliamentarians retreated back across Powick Bridge, where their own dragoons, placed on the southern bank by Brown for just this eventuality, held off Rupert's force with musket and pistol fire. Most estimates place losses at around 50 on each side, but it may be higher on the parliamentarian side in particular from prisoners and desertions, as well as those who fell into the team and drowned. As for Sandus, he was mortally wounded in the fighting, and would die soon after. It wasn't a massive battle, and it didn't have the potential to end the civil war before it really began. But the immediate reward of the battle, or skirmish of Powick Bridge, was mostly in morale. In the first real fight since the declaration of war, the Royalists had won. Prince Rupert had begun to build his reputation in England for his talents as a cavalry officer, and for his love of charges. For the parliamentarians, they had lost Sanders and a few other officers, including three Scots, to capture. When the fleeing cavalry kept right on fleeing across the Severn, they met with Essex's lifeguard, and put the feared of God, and Prince Rupert's horse, in them. So they ran away as well. This was despite the fact that Rupert never crossed the team, and was, at that point, escorting Byron's column out of Worcester. Once Byron and Rupert reached Shrewsbury, 
they brought with them not only the valuables of Oxford and the good news of victory, but also options. Charles knew where Essex's army was, as Worcester had been occupied by Essex the day after Powick Bridge. The king could march against the main parliamentary force. If he could destroy that, that would be a potentially civil war-ending battle. The alternative civil war-ending move would be to bypass Essex entirely, to march straight on London, to capture the city and win the war that way. If they lost the capital, Parliament would have to surrender, and if they didn't, they would lose the wealth and legitimacy which London brought, making any further resistance much more difficult. Next time, we will see which path Charles decides to take, and how that path will lead him to Warwickshire, and to a landmark which the locals referred to as the Edge Hill. Before we end today, I was interviewed by BBC Radio Scotland for their time travel show, and it was broadcast this last Saturday. I talked about the topic of my PhD, the Imperial Conferences, and the role they played in the independence of the Dominions, Australia, New Zealand, Newfoundland, South Africa, Canada, and the Irish Free State slash Republic of Ireland. It was really fun to be on the other side of an interview for once, and on the BBC, no less. If you want to listen to the interview, it's on the BBC Sounds website and app, but if you don't have an account, you can also listen to the Time Travels podcast. I'll put links in the description. Thank you to my entire House of Lords, especially those who have joined since the last episode. Alexander Travis, Earl of Hampton, Alex, Viscount McLaren, and Baron Liagushka. If you want to join their ranks, please go to patreon.com slash Pax Britannica. Every patron gets an ad-free feed, and patrons of higher ranks, such as from the rank of Earl, get extra bonus content, such as the biography of the Earl of Essex. Please do recommend the podcast to a friend or a colleague or anyone who's interested in this subject. It's the best way to help a podcast grow. And if you're meeting up with someone you haven't seen in a long time, what podcasts you've listened to is in the same category of discussion as what vaccine they've got or what TV shows they binged. Thank you to my entire House of Lords, to Sounds Like an Earful for the interval music used in today's episode, and as always, to you for listening. (laughs) 